What is ardency? Now, I think we all have some sense of it just in our very worldly lives. Just think of the feeling of ardor, you know, in the great love of your life or in the first days of the great love of your life. (laughs) what What is that feeling of ardor like? You know, there's this powerful and sustained energy, you know, that is just so full in us, you know, and it's characterized by, you know, tremendous warmth of feeling and passion and enthusiasm and interest. That's what ardor means. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. I'd like to begin by chanting the refuges and precepts. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samputassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samputassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samputassa budang sarnang gachami damang sarnang gachami sangang sarnang gachami Dutiampi budang sarnang gachami Dutiampi damang sarnang gachami Dutiampi sangang sarnang gachami Tatiampi budang sarnang gachami Tatiampi damang sarnang gachami Tatiampi sangang sarnang gachami Panatipata veramani sika padam samadhyami Adinadana veramani sika padam samadhyami Aprahmacharya Vairamani Sikha Padam Samadhyami Musawada Vairamani Sikha Padam Samadhyami Sura Maria Majapamadatana Vairamani Sikha Padam Samadhyami Ida me silang, maga palanyana sa, 
Pacheyo O Tu. I first became interested in Buddhism when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This was about almost 40 years ago now. After I finished those two years in Thailand, came back to this country for a while and tried to practice meditation, but it got very confusing and I realized that I needed a teacher. So I went back to Asia, ended up in India, went around to a bunch of different places, went up to the mountains, uh, Dalhousie, and then I went to some Hindu ashrams, finally ended up through just a series of circumstances in Bodh Gaya, which is the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And I met my first teacher there, Anagarika Munindra, who had recently come back from nine years of practice and study in Burma. So he had just, he had just come back to India, I think the year before. When I first met him, there were just a very few Westerners in Bodh Gaya there at that time. I remember sitting on the roof of this Burmese Vihara, this Burmese monastery. Uh, it was an open-air roof. And we were sitting around with Manindraji, and he asked us, each one of us, why we came to practice, similar to what we did the other morning. What was our aspiration? And for me, the aspiration was very clear. I wanted to free my mind from the limitations that I felt, to free my mind from all of those conditioned habits that caused suffering to myself and causes suffering in the world. After we had gone around like this, Munindraji then went on to explain the basic practice of Vipassana. And as he explained, just in a very simple way, it seemed like such a direct and uncomplicated way <clears throat> to understand the mind, to understand ourselves. This direct looking at the nature of our experience reveals very clearly how the mind creates suffering for ourselves and others and the possibility of being free. So these simple, although, as you know, not always easy practices of Vipassana are all rooted in one discourse of the Buddha. The discourse called the Satipatthana Sutta. So I want to read uh, just the opening, the opening lines of this discourse. Sutta means discourse. So this is the Buddha speaking, and he addresses the assemblage uh, bhikkhus. And generally bhikkhus refers to monks or bhikkhunis or nuns. But it's said that bhikkhus, the word in Pali, also refers to anyone who practices meditation, anyone who is on this path of awakening. So in that sense, we are all bhikkhus. So this is the Buddha really addressing us. 
Because this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. This is the opening statement. It's really quite a bold declaration. It's bold and it's unambiguous. It is the Buddha saying, this is the direct path to realization, namely the four Satipatthanas. So given the import of this, given the magnitude of what the Buddha is conveying, I thought it might be helpful over the next weeks to explore in some detail, and different one of us uh, will, will also be talking about this sutta, to explore in some detail, in the Buddha's own words, what are the actual instructions in these teachings of mindfulness, using the Buddha's own words to guide us in our practice. In talking about this, I'll be drawing greatly from a wonderful book that I came across. It's a commentary on this discourse. It's called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. It's by a German monk, Venerable Analayo, who studied and practiced in Sri Lanka. And it's a very inspiring book that unpacks the sutta in a very uh, insightful and incisive way. When we look at this discourse, it's really quite amazing because we find that all of the Buddhist teachings are contained within it. And I think this is one of the great aspects of his genius, that when you look at any one of the teachings, It's like a doorway to all the others. And so when we open one clearly, suddenly we're in this vast treasure house of Dhamma. To begin with, I want to talk a little bit about some of the Pali words in just these opening lines. Satipatthana. Usually... This word is translated as the foundations of mindfulness. Right? And so the Satipatthana Sutta, which I'm sure you're familiar with, it's the Sutta on the foundations of mindfulness. But there's another suggestion of a translation, which I found very interesting because it opens up some nuances of how we practice. I thought it would be worth just mentioning this briefly. Instead of foundations of mindfulness, the other translation is attending with mindfulness or abiding in mindfulness. So we could say Satipatthana is the four mindful abidings rather than foundation. And the reason I found this interesting 
is because when we translate it as foundation of mindfulness, it tends to solidify the object or give a tremendous emphasis to the object. When we translate it as the four mindful abidings, it just shifts the emphasis a bit to the quality of mindful knowing, mindful awareness. So instead of the emphasis on plunging into the object, which is often how it's taught, we can balance that and we learn how to balance it with the sense of resting in awareness, resting in the mindful abiding. Again, we'll explore this more as the retreat goes on and as we talk more about the, the many meanings of mindfulness. But the beauty of a long retreat is that we can explore the nuances you know, of the teachings, the nuances of the practice, the nuances of our own minds. So that's, that's the opportunity before us. So this is Satipatthana. The foundations, the abidings, the attending to with mindfulness. The second term, which is in this opening statement, is one which, again, you're probably very familiar with. In fact, in the old days, Michelle and I formed a club around this term, and that is the term dukkha. (laughs) We formed the dukkha club. (laughs) And understanding dukkha is just central for us to understand both our current situation, just what are our lives like now, how do we experience things, and what is the possibility for being free. A lot revolves about our understanding of this word. Now, it's usually translated as suffering. Well, that's the common translation. There's an interesting derivation when you look at the word dukkha and the derivation of it in the Pali. The prefix du, du, means badness or difficult. Ka refers to space or voidness and sometimes means the space or the whole of an, that the axle of a wheel goes through. You know, the axle slips into a certain space, to a certain hole. So dukkha is a badly fitting axle. The hole and the axle don't quite fit well together. What happens? It's a very bumpy ride. And I like that understanding of dukkha. It's life's bumpy ride. We use many words in English to to describe this. You know, we could call it disharmony or friction, dis-ease, stress, unsatisfactoriness. You know, it's all those aspects of conditioned existence that 
just keep us bumping along. But here's the critical point. For this bumpy ride to lead to suffering, conditioned existence is bumpy. That's how it is. For it to lead to suffering, there needs to be some kind of craving in the mind. We want something. We want to get something. We want to get rid of something. It's always some craving in relationship to experience that creates the suffering. So suffering is not inherent in the phenomena of the world. It's only the way the unawakened mind experiences them. What might cause distress, what might cause dis-ease for someone, might leave someone a bit more awakened perfectly at ease. There's a little Japanese haiku, or it's a short Japanese poem, I'm not sure it's a haiku, which just expresses this so well. It says, The barns burnt down. Now I can see the moon. You know, how would we feel if our barn burnt down? <laughs> oh, good. Now I can see the moon. Probably not. Because probably we'd be attached to our barn. Suffering is not inherent in the conditions of the world. It comes about when craving in one form or another is present. Okay, so the Buddha begins the sutta with this very bold declaration. This is the direct path to realization. This is the direct path to awakening. He then points out, namely the four satipatthanas, the four mindful abidings. So then he, he points out very clearly, and again very unambiguously, what are these mindful abidings? What are the fields, what are the pastures for our mindfulness? Which are really the, the abidings which help us accomplish freedom. I'd like to read his words on this. But as I read, pay attention to what your mind does with repetition. Just pay attention. Okay, so this is the direct path for attainment of the true way for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. What are the four? Here, bhikkhus, in regard to the body, abide contemplating the body, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feelings, abide contemplating feelings, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent, in regard to the world. In regard to the mind, abide contemplating the mind, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to dhammas, 
abide contemplating dhammas, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. As part of our cultural attention deficit disorder, I find that in reading the Buddha's words or hearing them, whenever I come across the repetitions, what I find my mind habitually doing is just to skip over them. Oh yeah, I heard that already. You know, why why is he saying it again and again and again? Well, there's another possibility. Maybe he's trying to tell us something. (laughs) You know, when the Buddha repeats with each of these phrases, the bhikkhu abides ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free of desire and discontent with regard to the world. And he repeats it each time. There's probably something of import that the Buddha is wanting us to pay attention to rather than to skip over. So we should look at these qualities. Here in, in such clear language, he's saying, these are the qualities that are important in our practice. In all of these four mindful abidings, these are the qualities that we need to cultivate, that we need to nurture on this path of freeing the mind. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the first of them, which is ardency. The bhikkhu, namely all of us, abides ardent. What is ardency? Now, I think we all have some sense of it just in our very worldly lives. Just think of the feeling of ardor, you know, in the great love of your life, or in the first days of the great love of your life. (laughs) 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 What What is that feeling of ardor like? You know, there's this powerful and sustained energy, you know, that is just so full in us. You know, and it's characterized by, you know, tremendous warmth of feeling and passion and enthusiasm and interest. That's what ardor means. So can we cultivate that kind of ardor in our love of the Dhamma, in our love of the truth? That's the quality that the Buddha is saying. We need that. We need that passionate interest, that passionate energy to explore and discover The story of one Chinese Chan master. His life is just so inspiring. His name was Su Yun. He practiced until he was 80 years old. And then he taught for the next 40 years. He died at the age of 120. You know, and he, he uses this phrase in his teachings that practitioners must have a long-enduring mind. 
And so we think, you know, we come for a three-month course or six weeks or even a couple of three-month courses. I've really done it. 80 years. <laughs> he probably ordained as a monk as a young, young boy. So how can we develop and sustain? And that's really the key question. How can we develop and sustain the quality of order in our practice? So there are a few reflections which, which can arouse this feeling. And if we reflect on them intermittently throughout the retreat, when you feel the order flagging, sometimes it reconnects us with this energy. The first of the reflections is just taking time to acknowledge the preciousness of this human birth that we have. You know, in all of the conditions that make practice possible for us. You know, the time, the resources, the interest, the motivation to practice. Can we really see all of these conditions as a great gift and as a blessing in our lives rather than simply take them for granted. There are so many places in the world where people are just going on with their lives. They're just happy, peaceful, stable lives. And then all of a sudden, in a day or a week, something happens and the whole world, their whole world, is turned upside down. You know, it might be natural disasters like just what's been happening in Florida. You know, there's four hurricanes in a month and people's homes destroyed. And just huge changes in people's lives. You know, sometimes we read of kind of the devastation of tremendous earthquakes or other natural disasters. Sometimes it's war or violence. And again, we see so much of that in our world. You know, people are just going on with their lives, people like us, and all of a sudden, you know, this kind of complete turmoil arises. Or it could be the onset, the sudden onset of an illness, which can certainly happen to any of us at any time. You know, we're just going along. All of a sudden, there's a major illness or disease to deal with. If we reflect on the preciousness of our present good circumstances. Now, this is a tremendous blessing that we're all here, we're all able to practice, we have the strength, the energy, the motivation, a peaceful place. It can arouse, it helps arouse a certain fire within us, a certain ardency. We strengthen this feeling, this energy with this reflection on the transiency, the impermanence of phenomena. Now look at all the things in our lives that we're attached to, that we identify with, that we think are important. You know, it could be people in our lives, it could be possessions that we have, it could be our bodies being a certain way. It could be having pleasant thoughts and ideas and feelings. But there is no thing that we have. There is no one in our lives 
no state of mind that we could ever experience that is outside the great truth of change. Absolutely everything in our lives is subject to this law of impermanence. The very natural process of birth, growth, decay, and death. Whether it's over a lifetime or over a moment. This is not depressing. It's just the law of things. It's the nature. It's the Dharma. It's how things actually are. But when we don't reflect on this, when we don't pay attention to it, when we don't understand it, then we often devote ourselves, we devote our lives, we devote our energy to wanting people or possessions or special meditation experiences. You know, it can be on any level. We get so caught up in the movie-like dramas of our lives. And in the process, we are really reinforcing the strong sense of self, of I. So I want to read something. It's, it's a little long, but it's something I like a lot. It's sort of a Dharma poem by one of the great Tibetan uh, masters, Shabkar, who lived, not exactly sure of the dates, maybe 18th century, something like that. And he was a wandering yogi, very realized. And as is common in the Tibetan uh, tradition, often the great yogis would just burst forth in Dharma song. So this is, this is a Dharma song, which I won't sing. <laughs> so this is Shabkar saying, Another day I went for some fresh air to a meadow covered with flowers. While singing and remaining in a state of awareness, I noticed among the profusion of flowers spread out before me, one particular flower waving gently on its long stem and giving out a sweet fragrance. As it swayed from side to side, I heard this song in the rustling of its petals. Listen to me, mountain dweller. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but in fact you even lack awareness of impermanence and death, let alone any realization of emptiness. For those with such awareness, outer phenomena all teach impermanence and death. I, the flower, will now give you, the yogi, a bit of helpful advice. A flower born in a meadow, I enjoy perfect happiness with my brightly colored petals in full bloom. Surrounded by an eager cloud of bees, I dance gaily, swaying gently with the wind. When a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me. When the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now, I look well enough, but it won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome frost will dull the vivid colors, till turning brown I wither. Later still, winds, violent and merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. You, hermit, are of the same nature. Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. 
When others praise you, you dance with joy. Right now, you look well enough, but you won't last long, not at all. Unhealthy aging will steal away your healthy vigor. Your hair will whiten and your back will grow bent. When touched by the hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the next life. Since you, mountain-roaming hermit, and I, a mountain-born flower, are mountain friends, I have offered you these words of good advice. Then the flower fell silent and remained still. In reply, I sang, O brilliant, exquisite flower, your discourse on impermanence is wonderful indeed. But what shall the two of us do? Is there nothing that can be done? The flower replied, Among all the activities of samsara, there is not one that is lasting. Whatever is born will die, whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse, whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows, even now in the full glory of my display, even as my petals unfold in splendor. You too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging, meditate in solitude, seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity. So flowers can teach us a lot if we know how to listen. This deep awareness of change, not just intellectually, but really taking it in, that this is the nature of all phenomena, it reminds us of the purpose of our practice. What are we doing? What choices are we making? remember one time, this is quite a few years ago, I was just going, I was on a long retreat, and I was just going through a period of just getting lost again and again in these recurring fantasies, and they're very pleasant. And it was just enjoyable. You know, I'd sit, I'd get lost in the fantasy, an hour or two would go by, and that was a nice sitting. (laughs) But at a certain point, I... kind of woke up to what my mind was doing, what choice I was implicitly making. I remember just asking myself the question, Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to get enlightened? You know, I was just reminding myself, what am I doing here? What is my purpose in being here? So we need to remind ourselves of that because the mind does have many habits. The reflection, the understanding of impermanence helps wake us up. The Dharma is a jewel of priceless value. Now, when we understand it and when we practice it, it is really the source of every happiness in our lives. So this is not some trivial undertaking. One of the one of the very great <coughs> Thai masters, his name was Ajahn Mun, and he was like the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition and a, a 
powerful, powerful uh, monk and extremely accomplished. He said, of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is to understand Dhamma. Once the mind is known, the Dhamma is understood in its entirety. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. So this is what I find so inspiring about this retreat. You know, it's like so many people coming together. And the reason we're all here is because we all share in this understanding. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. That the mind is a priceless treasure. And that understanding it, understanding our own minds, not theoretically, but through experience, is precisely the path to freedom. So today and for the next couple of days, you've been practicing the mindful abiding of loving kindness. It's another kind of mindfulness practice. We do this, it's really a time to gather in the scattered mind. Now resting in the awareness of the energy of the heart. You know, which Steve described so beautifully uh, last night, just calling forth metta, calling forth that energy of warmth, of goodwill, of good wishing, resting in the simplicity of the phrases, just the simple wish, you know, be happy, be healthy, be safe, whatever phrases you might use. We practice allowing our minds and our hearts to settle, to relax, to open. Now, as this happens, as you're settling in, collecting the attention, gathering in the scattered mind, especially in the first days of a retreat, what can happen is a great flood of memories and images and thoughts you know, at first it's often from the immediate past, and then as that clears out, it can be memories and images from the distant past. So this is all part of the process. It's an emptying process. It's an opening process. You may start thinking of people you haven't thought of in years, you know, in, in the silence of the mind. And sometimes as people come to mind, especially in doing the metta practice, sometimes they come to mind and we remember with tremendous gratitude you know, the good things they may have done for us or the kindnesses that they've shown us. But sometimes, and this happens in metta practice as well, so don't be surprised, sometimes people come to mind and we're remembering all the old hurts you know, all the old judgments, all the old reactions 
that arises too. But as our minds become quieter, as our hearts relax just through the coming back again and again to the gentle field of goodwill, of good wishing, we begin to see all of these memories and think of all of these people with a lot less projection and a lot less defensiveness. We're just creating a field of openness in which this parade of the characters of our lives, just, they come on through. And what's so amazing and so beautiful is that in this space of openness, we often find ourselves able to forgive ourselves and to forgive others much more easily because we're not so fixated on our own point of view. As there's less projection, less defensiveness, you know, all these memories come up, all these images of people, and we can really rest in the simplicity, be happy, be peaceful. This mindful meta-awareness really then becomes a process of purification. We're letting go of the struggles. We're letting go of the aversion. We're letting go of the anger. We're letting go of the grudges that we may have held. As these feelings of metta, of loving kindness, get stronger, our mind and our heart gets more pliable. It's not so, not so rigid, not so stiff. There's a softening that takes place. And it's out of this softness and pliability of mind that wisdom arises. We become much more patient with difficulties, whether difficulties with ourselves or difficulties with other people. And this was expressed in a wonderful line by the poet W.H. Auden. I think this is one of my favorite meta lines. He wrote, love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. <laughs> because it just acknowledges the human condition. You know, none of us are perfect. And we all are this mix of wholesome and unwholesome. So can we settle in, in a field of gentleness just acknowledging that? You know, we all have crooked hearts and we can all love our neighbors with their crooked hearts. And it both brings a lightness and also a bit of a sense of humor, you know, where we don't take ourselves quite so seriously. In this field of greater lightness and pliability, We begin to see more clearly and make wiser choices. We begin to see what's skillful, what's unskillful, because we're not so caught up in our reactivity. When we step back into this mindful field of metta, we can just see that yeah, that's not so skillful. That's not a skillful path. 
this is. What happens when we see more clearly? We make wiser choices. What happens when we make wiser choices? We're happier. What happens when we're happier? We feel more metta. What happens when we feel more metta? We see more clearly. See more clearly. Make wiser choices. Make wiser choices. Are happier. Happier, more metta. So it's a spiral upward. Some of you, especially those of you, and it probably is most of you, you know, have done many years of Vipassana practice, mindfulness practice, may be wondering, you know, well, what are these two practices and how do they fit together? And Somebody once asked Deepama, who was, you know, as most of you know, one of our teachers um, from India, a wonderful, extraordinary woman, extremely accomplished, you know, in Vipassana, in stages of awakening and realization, and extremely accomplished in all of the Brahmi Viharas and Metta, and so she was just this being, you know, of peace and love and simplicity, very extraordinary. So someone asked her whether, and this was a yogi asking, whether she would, should be practicing mindfulness or loving-kindness. This is the yogi's mind, going back and forth. Well, should I do this? Should I do that? Deepama answered, from my experience, there is no difference. That's, that's quite a statement. Because for her, love and awareness had become one. Now, when we're fully mindful... Isn't that a loving space? And when we're loving, isn't that a mindful space? This isn't just another little Deepama story, which is wonderful. Was, this was a Sufi teacher described being hugged by Deepama. So he's being hugged by Deepama so thoroughly, and Deepama was very short. Described being hugged by Deepama so thoroughly that all my six feet fit into her great, vast, empty heart with room for the whole of creation. And it's so beautiful and so descriptive. And here was this very small being with this vast, great, empty heart into which all of creation could be held. So don't create a problem for yourselves. You know, practicing metta, practicing mindfulness, they really come together in the simplicity of being present with gentleness, with openness, with softness, with pliability. And in that loving space, we see clearly. We see into the empty nature of things. As you all know, and it's obvious from the fact that you're here, the Buddhist teachings are not something simply to admire from afar. You know, to see in great beings like Deepama or other great teachers or the Buddha himself, oh yeah, that's wonderful, those qualities are wonderful. But we really understand 
that these are qualities to develop in ourselves. That's the point of being here. That's the point of practice. Thich Nhat Hanh, the <clears throat> wonderful Vietnamese Zen master and poet and peace activist, and he said, practicing Dhamma is a clever way to enjoy life. Happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. So you've come for a big helping. But remember, it's a bumpy ride. (laughs) That's the nature of conditioned existence. As we settle in to a growing awareness of ourselves, as we settle in to this field of metta, of goodwill, as we settle into the mindful abidings of the body and the mind, we begin to see more and more clearly that our practice is not just for ourselves. Now, we may come initially very much motivated by the desire to alleviate our own suffering, but what happens over time is we see it could never be just for ourselves, that our practice will inevitably help others. If we become more accepting, more loving, less judgmental, less selfish, the world becomes that much more accepting, that much more loving, that much less judgmental, that much less selfish. You know, our mind and body is a vibrating, resonating energy field. That's what it is, and we begin to experience it more and more like that. We are all just a field resonating and vibrating, and it inevitably touches and affects everyone else. This is the nature of our life here. So it's something like, and this is an image that was used, it's like being on the boat, on a boat in the middle of a sea in a great storm. And the storm is raging and howling and everybody in the boat is panicking. One wise, calm person who's calm, who's peaceful, who has the wisdom of understanding, one wise, calm person can bring everyone to safety. So the world is like that boat, and more, seems more now than ever, although maybe not, you know, just tossed by the winds and waves of greed and hatred and delusion. The world is really in the midst of this great storm, can we be those people who help bring it to safety, who help create peace? I'd like to close with, it is a prayer that I came across in a book of Native American teachings and prayers. It's a beautiful metta prayer. is from traditional Navajo teachings. I have been to the end of the earth. I have been to the end of the waters. 
I've been to the end of the sky. I have been to the end of the mountains. I have found none that were not my friends. Let's sit together for a few minutes in this field of metta. And sitting gently, you might focus on the breath at the heart center. There's that area in the center of the chest. all beings everywhere be happy and healthy. May all live in safety. May all live with ease. May the merit of our practice together be shared by all beings everywhere. May it be for their welfare, may it be for their happiness, may it be for their awakening. Mm -hmm.